Uh, well, making progress is something that uh, we all tend to want to do, isn't it? Um, it's true at work, true in lots of areas of life. It's true in work. Uh, maybe we've um, been in a certain career for a while, um, a certain role in that career, and we can see kind of the next rung on the ladder. And we like the idea, we like the challenge of taking that step. Or maybe we are one of those um, amazing people who gets up uh, very early on a Saturday morning to take part in the park run. Um, anyone, anyone do that? Lots of, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, at Camperdown Park, isn't it? And every week we want, to, we want to beat our best time. And the desire to, to make progress, uh, to move on, um, that is kind of hardwired, I think, into... Uh, into so many of us. But how do we make progress as Christians? How do we make progress as a church? And the false teachers who were troubling the Galatians, they they believed that they had the key. They believed they knew the answer to that question. And they promised these Christians perfection. They promised them an upgrade, we might say, on their relationship with God. And lots of people were starting to get taken in by this teaching. And they were deceived. And the word that Paul uses is bewitched. And that is why he is so wonderfully blunt in verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. He calls them foolish again in verse 3. We might say Egypt's. Um, But in all seriousness... What Paul is doing here is trying to liberate people. Paul is trying to break the spell. Paul wants to set people he loves free. Free from teaching that might look very respectable, but is actually very dangerous and is leading them away from Christ. And what he does in this Um, section of Galatians is he shows them that progress in the Christian life, it comes by looking back. Progress in the Christian life comes by looking back. And we move forward, we keep going by looking back. And when we're driving, we only look back if we are reversing But in the Christian life, it is the opposite. We move forward by looking back. The way into the Christian life, the way the Christian life starts, is the way the Christian life continues. And in this um, passage, I think there are three looks back. Um, Three times Paul um, calls these Christians and calls us to look back. And the first is in verses 1 to 5. And it is this, look back to your conversion. I mean, he's speaking to Christians here, of course, but he says this, look back to your conversion. And in the first five verses, Paul is like an interrogator. He is peppering his um, readers with questions, firing them at him. He, he asks five in five verses. In fact, um, if you look down at verse two, it's quite, uh, almost quite humorous. He says, let me ask you only this. And then he asks lots of lots and lots of questions, doesn't he? And there's a sixth question in verse 6. And the reason he does so is to make them think long and hard about how their Christian lives began. 
And he reminds them that as he spoke of Christ, it was, it was as if they could see him dying for them on the cross. And as that happened, they placed their trust in him. They said what so many people have said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But then there was a change and they started to lose faith in that message. And if you look really closely, can you see the phrase, the the contrast that is repeated? It's in verse 2, and it's also in verse 5. And the contrast is between works of the law and hearing by faith. Works of the law and hearing by faith. These are two ways of, of speaking about life with God. And Paul wants us to consider which of these ways was the way that our Christian life began. Which of them is God's way? Only one of them is authentic. And the answer is hearing with faith. And if we think about our lives um, as Christians, those of us who are Christians here tonight, we know this. Maybe we heard about Jesus as a child and Bible stories were read to us and there came a point when the Holy Spirit worked in us and we put our trust in Jesus, or maybe faith came later. But whenever it happened, however it happened, what happened was the same. We put our trust in Jesus because of a message that we heard. And the very act, the very uh, idea of hearing, of listening to something is, is very interesting to um, consider. Um, Grant McCaskill, who I think some people here might know, teaches a New Testament in, in Aberdeen University. He contrasts hearing with performing. Um, he writes um, this. Those two things are very different, aren't they? Hearing and performing. He writes, here is the subtle point. The first makes you the principal agent And the other makes you into someone who appropriates the performance of someone else. One makes you the owner of what is achieved, the proprietor of righteous acts. The other makes you a beneficiary of the virtuosity of another person. Hearing and performing, those are two very different things. And Paul says there is only one way that we become Christians. It is by hearing with faith. Paul says when that happens, we receive the Holy Spirit. Sometimes Christians are taught that we receive the Holy Spirit as a kind of second experience after we put our trust in Jesus. And that can be very unsettling teaching. And maybe we think that that happens after we've been Christians for a while. Paul says the opposite here. Paul describes this receiving the Holy Spirit as something that has happened in the past. The moment we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are united to him by faith and we receive the Holy Spirit. We begin by the Spirit. And that is the privilege of every Christian. You may be a Christian tonight who feels very unimpressive, whose life is very up and down, but you can know that you began by the Spirit. You have received 
the Holy Spirit. And in verse 5, Paul mentions miracles. Um, I think the best way to understand this is the way that Paul's ministry was authenticated. If you remember the context, Paul is talking about the start of their Christian lives. And if you read Acts 13 and Acts 14 later on, you'll see that um, that was what happens. Miracles took place amongst these Christians to show that Paul was genuine. And the greatest miracle, of course, as it always is, was God giving them new life. When that miraculous kind of thing happened, when God supplied the Spirit, it did not happen, Paul is saying, because of what they had done. And so Paul says that they are fools. They are fools if they think the way they continue the Christian life is going to be different to how it began. Look at the very pointed question in verse 3. Having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Is it the case that you you get into God's family by faith and then you stay in by what you do? The answer to that question is no. You and I are not kept in God's family by what we do, by our our reading the Bible, our attendance at church, our prayer, our sharing our faith, none of that. No, the only way we can be justified, the only way is by faith alone. We are declared righteous. We are united to Christ by faith. And because we are, because we belong to a crucified Savior, Well, the kind of suffering that Paul mentions in verse 4 is inevitable. Do you see that? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? What is Paul talking about um, here? Maybe it is the shame of, for us, living in a culture that is very hostile to the gospel. Maybe it is the challenge of turning away from sins that we love. If we place our trust in Jesus then we will face pain. This had been the Galatian Christians' experience. They'd suffered for for the gospel. But now it looked like it was all for nothing. Paul wants them to reflect on all of this, to remember their conversion. And he wants us to do the same. The Christian life is not some kind of project that God starts and we finish. It is not something that God begins and we complete. No, becoming a Christian, Paul says, means coming to God with empty hands. It is receiving. It is hearing. It is not performing. And our new life in Christ, it is a gift, a wonderful gift. It took a miracle to get it started. It took a miracle, a work of the Holy Spirit to make us believers. And it is because of God's commitment to us, because of his grace, that you and I can have confidence tonight. Confidence that we will make it to the end. We continue always as we began. The way into the Christian life is the way on. 
Secondly, Paul says, look back, not just to your conversion, look back to your father. Look back to your father, verses 6 to 9. And in these verses, Paul brings up um, Abraham, and he is making a brilliant move here. Um, Sometimes when I uh, worked as a teacher, we would have uh, debates in class. I have to confess, I would sometimes um, introduce a class debate, maybe when my lesson preparation had not been quite what it should have been. Um, That is the secret to teaching, get all the kids to do the work. Um, This house believes X, Y, or Z. They would um, have to argue that um, um, question. And often I would tell uh, pupils, what you need to find is a killer argument. You need a killer argument. That's what you need in a debate. And Paul reveals his killer argument in verse 6. And it is a person. It is Father Abraham. Now, maybe you can see why this is just so brilliant. The false teachers, they look back to the teaching of Moses. Uh, The false teachers, they took his words, Moses' words, and they distorted them. And they taught that Christians were made right by obeying what God had revealed through him. But Paul, he goes back even further. He looks back beyond Moses. He looks back to the first man who was circumcised. He looks back to Israel's founding father. And this is a bit like an American going back to someone like James Madison to to try and understand the US Constitution. What did the man who wrote it think? What does the man who was there at the very beginning think? Did Abraham live by works of the law or by hearing will faith? Well, it's so clear, isn't it? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The background to all of this is Genesis chapters 12 and following, 12 to 15. God spoke to him. God made promises to him. And what did he do before circumcision? Before the law, he was counted righteous. And Paul wants us to know that, that, is all, that it is always those of faith who are true sons of Abraham. Sons of Abraham. I think that phrase is really significant. As we saw last week, lots of legalism is about how we think other people perceive us. And like Peter, as we saw last week, we can often be too concerned about how we look in the eyes of others. We try to keep up appearances. And the false teachers were saying, if you want to be a real Christian, if you want to be a real son of Abraham, if you want to be like us, then you need to get circumcised. They claimed that living by faith was a kind of new way. But Paul says, no. Paul says, let's go back even further than you guys want to go. Let's remember how Abraham was justified, not by works, but by faith. And this was always God's plan. 
um, in the second half of chapter 3. We're going to see uh, um, soon how the law fitted into all of this. What was its purpose? But tonight, God wants you and I to know this. The only way to be right with him has always been simple faith in what he has done. You see, who was Abraham? I think because he becomes such a a great example of um, faith to us, it's kind of easy to think that Abraham was this sort of clean-cut citizen and just standing around waiting Um, wondering what God would uh, have him do. No, before God called Abraham, he was busy worshipping the moon. He was enjoying his pension. Um, Genesis uh, 11 and 12 are the backdrop to this. And Ur and Haran that are mentioned in his call, they were centers of lunar worship. Just listen to Joshua chapter 24. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. Abraham was the father of Israel. He was the ultimate insider. But he began his life as an outsider. And it was always God's plan for men and women, for boys and girls, to be made right with God by faith, not by works. Paul says more about this in verses 8 and 9. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now, maybe you hear that um, verse and you wonder, when was the gospel preached to Abraham? That's kind of the obvious question, isn't it? He never heard a sermon on penal substitutionary atonement. Um, He never uh, read a book about the lordship of Christ. How can Paul say that? Well, look very closely at uh, the text for a clue. When does Paul say that the gospel was preached to Abraham? When he was told, verse 8, this, in you shall all nations be blessed. Now, what is that a reference to? It is a reference to um, Genesis 12. It is a reference to God's covenant with him. And if you look back at the beginning of verse 8, can you see what is included in that promise? For seeing that God would justify Justification is included in that promise. Having a right standing before God. When God spoke to Abraham, he was promising that what would happen to him, well, well, that would happen to people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Maybe you remember God took him out. God showed him the stars. He promised him, you'll be the father of countless people. Why does this matter? Well, sometimes I think people think that in the Old Testament, God's people were, they were kind of made right with God by what they did, by their works. In the New Testament, things have changed. It's all about Jesus. But can you see how that is wrong? That's wrong, isn't it? 
Um, writing on Galatians, um, the American author Philip Ryken, he reminds us that the Bible is one book. The Bible has one message. And from the promise of a serpent crusher in uh, Genesis 3 all the way to the new creation, it is the story of God's covenant of grace. And as Ryken points out, though he did not know Jesus by name, Abraham demonstrated his faith in God at Mount Moriah. He showed he believed in the atonement and the resurrection as he went up to offer Isaac. He trusted that God would provide a sacrifice. Not only that, he did so believing that God could, God would raise the dead. And tonight, what he could see kind of in shadow form, what he could see at a distance, you and I can see more clearly. See, Abraham, he looked forward to the cross. But you and I look back to it, don't we? And all who belong to God's family have always been saved in this way, by faith, by trust in what God would do. Like Abraham, you and I tonight, we walk, as we sang earlier, by faith, not by sight. We place our trust in what God has said. We are sons of Abraham. And all who place their trust in Jesus, the Messiah, are sons of Abraham too. So look back to your conversion. Look back to your father. The last thing Paul says here is look back to your curse bearer. Look back to your curse bearer. This is verses 10 to 14. And in these verses, just like verses 6 to 9, Paul, he takes his readers back into the Old Testament to explain what Jesus has done for them. And if you look, can you see the phrases that are in quotation marks? Um, If you're newer to the Bible, these are verses from the Old Testament that Paul is kind of weaving into his argument. There's four in particular. And let's look at each of them. Verse 10. In verse 10, Paul contrasts living by faith with relying on works of the law. But can you see what he says? Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 27. And what it means is this, that God's moral standards are so high, God's holiness is so great, that total, perfect, complete obedience is required. God is in a different category to us. And so if we were ever to be made right with him by works, Well, the standard would be perfection. And we can't do that. None of us can do that, can we? However good we are tonight, none of us can do that. And so we deserve God's curse. Paul continues his argument with quote number two. It comes from Habakkuk 2. The law was never to be viewed as a means of justification Instead, says Paul, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Um, In verse 12, Paul contrasts the two ways of life he has talked about by giving us a quote from Leviticus 18. Either we live by the law, we try to earn our way with God through our obedience, or we live by faith. There is no alternative. And because of our sin, there is no way that you and I can do the former. But there is someone who has made our right standing with God possible. There is a way for you and I to experience God's blessing. And that is by simple trust in the one who became a curse for us. And in the final quote, as Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and verse 23, we see this. We see that um, these verses, they are a description of how a criminal was to be treated after his execution. He would be hung on a tree in public so that all would see he'd committed a terrible crime. He wasn't to stay there, but instead he was to be taken down. He was to be buried Scripture tells us on the same day. Because cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed. The American theologian R.C. Sproul, he once um, pointed out that we tend to think of um, cursing language as being associated with the kind of witchcraft and superstition that we we thought about at the beginning, the kind of thing that we see in verse um, 1, bewitching. But blessing and cursing were part of God's covenant. And this is what Jesus has done for us tonight. On the cross, he took the curse that we deserve. Um, To make that point, to try and get it across um, Sproul, he takes the words that I will say at the end of this service, the ironic blessing, and he flips them. What does cursing mean? May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. On the cross, as he bled, as he died and cried out in pain, Jesus was forsaken like that. Jesus was accursed that you and I would be blessed. This is what he has done for us. There is nothing left for you and I to do. And so the way in to the Christian life is the way on. The way forward is always to look back to look back to our conversion, to look back to our Father, to look back to our curse bearer, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life is not a project that we complete. No, we can have confidence because of Jesus that he is the one who will lead us home. And so we say, upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Well, let's pray together.